continue our series on in times like these. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Message is entitled, A Greater Patriotism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this country where we can worship you freely. We thank you for the forefathers that have gone before us. Lord, for our fathers and brothers in arms who stand in harm's way even today, that we might continue to enjoy this liberty that you have provided. Certainly your grace has been experienced in great measure in the United States. But Lord, we come now to a day where our leaders have turned their back on you. In many cases, they've turned their back on their own constitution. And Lord, we as believers are a little confused sometimes about what to do. But Lord, I pray today that as we look at the word, that we would have a sure foundation that we might be found faithful in our time and our place. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. A greater patriotism. The Oxford English Dictionary gives one of the definitions of, of a patriot as a person actively opposing enemy forces occupying his or her country, a member of a resistance movement, a freedom fighter, originally used of those who opposed and fought the British in the American War of Independence. Now, I grew up with kind of my own definition, uh, I guess in my own mind, my thoughts. Uh, my dad was just 12 or 13 when they were fighting the Second World War, so his uncles and people that, that were older than him that were fighting were people that he prayed for, and when the war was over, those were the books that he read, Battle of the Bulge, you know, uh, patriotic books, and we've been a family that has been a part of every war since the Revolutionary War. And so in my mind, that's what patriotism is. It has to do with supporting your country and the Constitution. That's what we pledged to do when we were in the service, to support and defend the Constitution. And when I think of patriotic things, I think of John Philip Sousa and marching bands and military uh, might and obeying orders so that we might continue to have the liberties that we enjoy some have called America an experiment in democracy. And now that we, about the 1960s, our attorneys began to turn away from the Constitution and begin to use case law as the way to make decisions. And so now many attorneys just look at it as, well, it's just uh, what they may have had one thought, but we're so glad it's so stretchy and rubbery, we can make the Constitution do anything we want it to. And that's the same way some liberal theologians look at the Word of God. Well, I don't like that part, so I think it means this to me. And yet, words mean things. But I was kind of wake up to the fact that uh, mine is not the only idea about patriotism. On the news the other day, there was a, a scene because in Denver they have a pre, like a July 4th Eve celebration down in Denver, and there were people sitting on the ground and getting ready to drink beer, and down in Colorado, smoke dope, I guess, and uh, 
they're sitting around. It wasn't a military band they're waiting for, just a rock band. Nothing wrong with that. But they were just waiting, and they're all sitting around the grass and enjoying what they enjoy. And they, the girl said, there's such a patriotic mood here tonight. And I went, I guess patriotism has kind of taken on the same thing that we get from the Christmas season when people say, oh, it's just the spirit of the season. I don't know what that means. Just another reason to party? I'm not sure. I know... I hope people are thankful. I remember some of our veterans coming. When I served, it was just at the end of Vietnam era. And uh, a lot of our young men coming home from Vietnam were spat upon and, and called names because they served in an unpopular war. But now we've learned how to be nice, and so we have people that like to, didn't, weren't willing to serve themselves, and I guess I'm feeling a little manipulated every time there's a big gathering. People want all those that serve to stand up, so they go, uh, and I'm a little tired of being manipulated myself, and so many times I don't stand because I don't feel like it. It's America, I don't have to, and I'm not in the military anymore, so I don't have to follow those orders, and those guys usually asking. I just kind of get the feeling sometimes, oh, I'm glad you idiots went because I don't have to now, and I get to enjoy all, everything you provided for me, and, and, I, and I don't take it that way. But sometimes I feel a little manipulated because I think it's just a nod. Oh, good. Great. Because I think when a nation turns its back on God, and listen, God's fingerprints are everywhere on this nation. When you go to our Capitol buildings in Washington, D.C., you go to the Supreme Court, there's Moses and the Ten Commandments. On almost every Capitol building is Scripture. You go to Lincoln's Monument, and you see the difference in a man's life. In the first inaugural, inaugural address, he's a president, he's a politician, but he's not a believer. And you see his second inaugural address, and history tells us that Lincoln came to a saving knowledge of Christ during his first term, and the second inaugural address is Scripture. It's Scripture. We've forgotten our history. I know there's a lot of furor today over the Confederate flag and that it was a symbol of this and that the, the, Confederate, the, the war between the states was fought over slavery. No, it wasn't. Read your history books. It wasn't fought over slavery. I'm glad that's one of the results of that war because slavery was an evil institution. But that's not why it was fought. It was fought because of states' rights, because of the Constitution, and as great a president as he was, President Lincoln caused a lot of the violence that went on. How come? Well, General Lee and General Jackson were generals from Virginia. And if you read Jackson's history, you read that they were going to go with the North. And Lee was a great general. And guess what? President Lincoln, in his first, began, he sent troops against Americans. And they went, oh, no. We're not going there. But we want to rewrite a history. We kind of want to rewrite a constitution. What, we're in, what we end up with is a nation that's turned its back on God. Were we a perfect nation? No, we're far from a perfect nation. But as Jonathan Kahn says, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, we're one of the two nations that was founded for the glory of God and at its beginning was dedicated for the purposes of God. And when George Washington dedicated the nation, he also said, and those nations that are open for the blessings of God, when a nation turns its back on God, will also be open to the curses that God leaves on a nation. 
But it's, it's no wonder that we are a little confused as Christians in a nation like this because we say the Pledge of Allegiance and it says one nation under God and we have even churchmen and most of our politicians saying, oh, we don't want to be too religious. We don't want God having any influence in our schools or our government. Oh, no, separation of church and state, that's never what church and state separation was about. It was about the Catholic Church not being control of the government one church being control of the government. But the founders never intended that God was not being influenced. They would not have dedicated the nation to God. And yet we want to forget our history. And the Bible says the wicked will be turned into hell. What's a wicked person? That's a person that knowingly rebels against God, that knows what God's word says, but says, nope, no God for me. The wicked will be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I know with the new laws that they've made, even some Christians are thinking, well, it'll be good because everybody can be treated nice. But if you notice, the Constitution doesn't have anything to do with marriage. And the Constitution states that laws are supposed to come from where? The Supreme Court? No, not the Supreme Court. They're only to interpret laws. Now, I'm not here to, get to, to make a political speech so we could vote somebody else in office because even as a psalmist in Psalm 100 looked around, there were pagan worshipers on the hills and he could see their fires. He said, I look to the hills. But where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, there were some people in the Old Testament, that God called out of paganism, and he called them to go to a land, and even the land that God was going to establish for his people, his chosen nation, to be a light to all the world, these people, Abraham and those that came after him, the patriarchs, as they began to trust God, began to see that that was not the ultimate destination. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, it says, all these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having uh, confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In order for us to be found faithful in our generation, we as believers cannot make any decision the Supreme Court makes or react to the sin around us like that's the important thing. We can't be distracted. The battleground is still about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the battleground is. It's not getting involved in some movement as the church to make sure marriage is seen as what God said. Listen, it's just a reflection of where we're at. It's just where we're at. And in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, when you see a nation that kills its own babies at the rate we do, almost 60 million children have been slaughtered for the convenience of our nation through abortion. We can't look at any other nation and say, oh, that's a wicked nation. We have blood on our hands. And it goes on to say that those nations, those cultures, 
that suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They know the right thing, but they suppress it. And they say, no, no, God for us. We will not have this man to rule over us. God gives them over. God gives them over. God gives them over. And the mark of a culture that's dying is the rise of homosexuality and the celebration of it. So are we called to hate? No, we are not called to hate. We are called to love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if it stopped there, say, well, Paul, you're being awful judgmental. But that's not the gospel, is it? Because he goes on, and such were some of you. That's us. Every one of us were in that list of categories. Why? Because while we recognize there are different results of sin, for instance, if a man lusts after a woman who's not his wife, God says that's sin. It's despicable. Jesus said it's the same as committing adultery. In God's eyes, it's adultery. But how much more devastating if that man follows through on it and destroys his marriage and destroys his children? See, different results of sin, but sin is the same. So none of us can say, well, I didn't take as much grace of God for me to get saved as somebody else you list out there. No, no. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we have this opportunity to be lights in our time and our place, but we must remain focused on what's important. And if you go to the last couple verses in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. He started in the same place. Having received this great ministry of the gospel, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's just saying we've been there before. No matter what you suffer for following Christ, for taking a stand for Christ, it cannot compare to the glory, the weight of glory. You can't compare to what you're going to enjoy in heaven to that great glory you're going to be a part of. When you get there, you'll say, oh, yeah, it's worth it all. It doesn't even compare. It'll be gone. It'll be from your memory gone. Every tear will be wiped away. And he says, while we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And we get so wrapped up in the, etern- in the temporal, don't we? All this stuff's going to burn. It's going to be gone. So if they come to us and our government changes enough, and they haven't yet, but they say, you know what? We've changed the Constitution, and you don't have the right to preach Jesus anymore. And if you do, we'll take your building. And you know what we say? There you go. Why? Because we recognize that our God is powerful. And all this stuff, this isn't, this isn't all that valuable compared to Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that they, they or 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they just there were Christians that they just joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. How is that possible? Because they found something that's more precious that cannot be taken away, and that's Jesus Christ. If you're like me, our hearts have been heavy 
Because we as believers are not going to be taken unaware. We see what the word of God says and we see what he says about cultures. That all the wicked will be turned into hell and all the nations that turn their back on God. Is there opportunity for revival? Yes. Well, what does that depend on? That depends on God. What is his plan? We don't see United States in prophecy. We don't see it. Now, it could be that it is destroyed because of his own wickedness. Or it could be that there's a great revival and a great return, but then the rapture comes and it's left without people. I don't know the mind of the Lord. He is sovereign. But we want to be available as his children to be found faithful in our time and our place. We can pine for the good old days. We can talk about what the framers of the Constitution intended. You can listen to Rush Limbaugh and all the uh, uh, prognosticators and get real angry about how things are. Or you can just keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's what the apostle says here. Don't get so, because that's where we get sad, isn't it? When we feel the loss of temporal things, things that aren't going to last. They're taking this away, they're taking that away. And we need to remember, folks, that most Christians, most of the believers of all time did not enjoy the great liberties that we've taken for granted. But in some respects, most respects, we can't lay the blame for losing our liberties and the focus on God at the feet of those that don't know God. We can't lay it there. Whose responsibility? Well, when things begin to change, when we voted that it was okay to take the life of children, unborn, innocent children, we said, huh, well, that's terrible. But like Hezekiah, well, as long as there's peace in our day. And before that, when they said, no, we can't pray in school anymore, no official prayers, and later they, they, they said, well, you can't mention the name of Jesus. We went, oh, well, as long as there's peace in our day. But we're not living in those times. We're living in these times. And so we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think I'm going to go through this quickly because we still want to get to the table, but I just want to touch briefly and then emphasize the last part in this chapter. First of all, sometimes what we need to do is go back and just count the cost and say, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, really. I mean, somebody's house burns down, right? I and mean, that's a terrible thing. They lose everything. But what do they always say? Hey, we didn't lose any life. And we're thankful for that. Why? Because life is precious. And stuff, hey, that can be replaced. And that's why you buy insurance. I remember uh, we had the tornado seven years ago and it hit the house and our house was over here where Clayton lives now, and man, it was a wreck. I mean, that thing hit. It looked like somebody took a shotgun to the, to the siding, and my friend called me, my big brother, Lynn Howe. He said, I just feel so terrible. I said, what do you feel terrible for, Lynn? I got insurance. It's going to be better. I got plans. Nobody was hurt. It was a good test for the building. It stood firm, got one little nick in the... Uh, Siding, it's right over the big window. You can see it when you go out today. The loss of things is just, it's just stuff. It's people's lives that are precious. But in verses 1 through 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, hey, you have the opportunity for a new courage. So I want to tell you something. Your body, 
All these things that you desire, it's not your dream home here. If you're a believer, you may try to fill your life with those things that are going to make you happy. Maybe it's a a career in athletics. Maybe it's a career in engineering, and and you just have your heart set because I can do those things. And and if I make this money, and then I can get this retirement, and I can have a happy home. No, that's not what you set your affection on. You set your affection on things above, things that are not seen. And so if we just take an evaluation, what's the worst thing that happened? He says, listen, your body, you don't even know it, but what you desire is not to be dead. He said, not to be naked, but to have your new body and to be in heaven. And you need to understand this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's the worst thing that could happen? You could be present with the Lord. If you belong to him today, to die is to be present with him. Now, most believers that are biblical, let's put it that way, believers that are biblical do not fear the rapture. There's probably some amillennials to do because then they'll, they'll be wrong, you know. Most believers don't fear the rapture. Why? Because what it says, you're going to hear a trumpet and before the trumpet dies in your ears, you're going to be there in the, in the clouds with the Lord. What Paul is telling us is death is no different than that for the believer. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Close your eyes here, open them there. Hey, we ought to be the most courageous people in the world. Because Jesus has pulled the sting out of death. It's not the unknown. It's not blackness or darkness. It's presence with light. It's just moving to a different location, a better location. Paul said, death is swallowed up by what? By life. You don't even know what life is compared to what we're going to be uh, living in heaven. He said, so we need to be of good courage. Understand that we have a new accountability. He said, we have a new purpose, and that's not to be living lives for ourselves, but trying to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what our whole life is to be about. It's not about trying to find out what you like to do and uh, what you're best at so you can have a great career and have all the things that life has to offer. That's the Christmas spirit. That's the spirit of Joel Osteen. You can have your best life now. If this is all you get, if your best life now, whatever you can get in this world, because Jesus did that calculation. In Matthew 16, 24, he said, what if a man gains the whole world? And loses his soul. Is that a good business deal? No, it's not. You live for 70, average 70, even 80 years, the last 10 years, a hard time getting around. And you lose your soul, even even though you gain everything you can gain in this world. Athletic fame, financial success, power in government, money in the bank. And you lose your soul, that's eternity. And then he said, here's another calculation for you. Jesus said, if a man gained the whole world and then realized he was at the edge of eternity, what would he give to exchange for eternal life? What would he give? Everything. Jesus used the parables. He said, a man is walking through a field. Just walking through a field. He doesn't expect it. And he stumbles over a box. And he stops. He looks down. And the box is a treasure. He says, that man sees what a great treasure it is. He hides it. 
looks around, and then he goes and sees if he can, who owns the field, and he buys it, and he gives everything he can to buy that field. Why? Because the treasure in the field is worth it. He said, that's the kingdom of God. Whatever it costs you to come to Christ, it'll be worth it. Now, salvation is free, but there must be a denial of self. The invitation of Jesus was not, ask Jesus in your heart and you can have your best life now. That wasn't his invitation. His invitation was, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was he going? He was going to battle. He was going to die for the souls of men, and he calls us to join that battle. It's a life of sacrifice for the best life in heaven. Now, we don't earn it. Jesus paid it all, but we have opportunity to be a part of what he's doing to win other people. Even though it's by sacrifice and suffering, it will be worth it. He says, listen, you have a new, whole new perspective on life. You've got a new accountability, and that is you live your life no longer for yourself, but for him who died for you. Let's read a little further. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What he's saying, and the word there is actually terror. But it's not that we are terrorized by God who loves us. But we of all people have a fear of God. We have a fear of God. Now when I worked at Gunite, and I worked on the, the side of the foundry, we had those great big furnaces, that the big powerful furnaces they would turn on and melt all that metal. And they had really heavy concrete in it that fastened those things down, and the place would just rumble when they turned that on. Now, I was not terrorized to go to work. I liked going to work. I made good money when I went to work. But I had a very healthy respect and a fear of what could happen. And when I was running the crane that we carried those big molten uh, vats around with to pour and make the wheels and the drums, we were very careful with what we did because that was a really dangerous vat we had. And if the core broke out, we got it right out of there so it wouldn't hurt anybody. That was fear. We as believers, we don't have to be afraid of God because he loved us. But of all people, we have a fear of disappointing him, and we understand that one day we're going to stand before him, and everything we've done with the life that Christ has given us and all the giftedness he's given us, we will give an account for that, just like a steward. And 1 Corinthians 3 says, the day will reveal it. After you've received Christ, have you lived for yourself and used your liberty just for yourself? Or will you be saved so as by fire? When Paul says that, he's not saying, you know, you get in, but your tail feathers get singed. He's not saying that. You're secure in Christ as much as if you're sitting right there today in heaven. You belong to him. But after all he's given for you, to have nothing to give back to him. What a sad day. As opposed to those believers who are just faithful. God hasn't called you to be anybody else. He hasn't called you to be Charles Spurgeon or William Carey or Billy Graham. He's called you to be you filled with the Holy Spirit. He has gifted you for a purpose. He just wants you to be faithful with what he's put you in your hands. Faithful. 
And he said, one day you're going to give an account. Verse 14, he says, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, everything's different. We recognize no man. We don't look at people the same. We don't look at people and judge them and say, well, there's no hope for them. No, no. We look at them as those who have been cleansed also. See, we have that list of sins. Oh, terrible sinners. Ooh, yeah, they deserve hell. That's us. And such were some of you. That's all of us. But now we don't look at them as without hope. We look at people, even people that are lost and they're sick and they're sinning, we say, whoa, what would it be like if God saved them? And God puts them in our heart. We begin to pray for them. We begin to love them. We begin to look for opportunity. How can we minister to them? We don't throw them under the bus and say, well, no hope for them. The Bible says, are you become judges with evil intentions that you think, in James, you can decide who's worthy of salvation or not? Oh, you don't look at people the way Jesus did. He looks at people as the potential for redemption, every single one of them. Even those that are lost in the darkest of sin can be a diamond that will be a testimony for him that shines against that darkness. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. And then he's given us a new occupation. Every single believer, every single believer is to be an ambassador for Christ. What is an ambassador? Well, he's a person in a foreign country representing the government or the kingdom that he comes for, that he comes from. And he's there to represent. He's not to change the laws of that country. He's not to put down that country. He's just there to represent where he comes from. He's not there to judge that country. But he's there to say, hey, here's what my country's all about. He's there to make his king or his president proud and to represent his people, the people of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that he's gifted us all and that we are all to be ministers of a new covenant. You know what that's like? That's like the old medical doctors, you know, the old country doctors. They had their education and had their bag of herbs and medicines. And they would come to your house and they'd say, oh, yeah, I can see what the problem is because they've studied. And they know the body and they know diseases and they, they reach into their bag and they apply that healing. Now, we live in a culture that says, oh, no, we don't, want, we don't want any healing here. No, 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 no. We'd rather have doctors that you go to see even though they have medicine, but they have to start with, well, here's what's wrong. No, 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 no more of that. Just say, I think you'll be fine and let people go on and die. You see, but, you know, it's unpopular to tell people they're lost in their sin. That's what the Holy Spirit ministered to you. Can you be gracious enough? To pass on the healing, that's where it starts. If any man would follow Christ, he must deny himself. That means you recognize you're not doing it. No matter how religious you are, no matter how, how many religious things you know, no matter how many facts about Jesus and the Word of God, how much you give to wonderful organizations, you are lost without hope apart from Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity 
it's not about us. It's not about talking other people into our political side so we can get the right political people in office. It's about sharing with them the treasure we have in these earthen vessels. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. And he says, Now all these things, verse 18, are from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's given us that word of reconciliation. That Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What does that mean? That means in your striving, you're never going to find rest till you find it in him. You can do all the good things you want, and all you're going to find is, you know on the inside, you've got to live between your ears. You're the only one that knows. But you're not making it. And the proof, you don't have that same confidence that when you wake your eyes up after death, when your eyes wake up, that you're going to be with the Lord. You say, well, hey, nobody can know that. Let me ask you a question. If you have children, do you want your children to be secure in your love or do you want them to think, well, I'm not going to love you as much if you don't do as well? Well, you say, you know, Pastor, I want my children to do well, but I want them to know I love them no matter what. Do you think God has less love for his children than that? No, no. He loved his, his children enough to save them for all eternity. And he wants his children to be secure in his love. He asked the disciples, which one of you has a son and your son comes in, he's been playing like crazy and he's tired and he's hungry and he sees that mom left some boiled eggs there. And he says, Dad... Could I just have one of those eggs to eat? Mom cooked them up earlier. I'm really hungry. I could eat an egg. And instead, Dad reaches down. He picks up a snake and he says, No, son, here, eat this snake. And I'm sure that the disciples would, Oh, that'd be a terrible dad that would do that. He says, How about this? How about if your son came in and, and he was really hungry and there was some fish that Mom had made? And it's fried up, it's bass, it's wonderful. But it's a little leftover, it's still crunchy. And he says, Dad, could I just have some fish? I'm so hungry. He says, no, son, eat this scorpion. He said, no, no. Dad, how about if I could just, could I just have a piece of bread? No, here, suck on this rock. What's he saying? If you being evil know how to love your children, what do you think that came from, loving your children? That's from God. That's, that's the image of God in you that you love your children. And God wants his children to be secure in spite of their sin. He died for our sin. He wants to save us from our sin. But he doesn't say, well, listen, here's eternal life. Unless you mess up, then I'm taking it from you. No, no. He wants you to be secure in his love. And that's what he wants us sharing with other people. People don't come to Christ because they say, well, I don't think I could keep it up. What, what if I can't keep it up? That's the gospel. The gospel isn't just for lost people. It's for us as believers every day that we don't earn it after we get saved. It's still a free gift. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. And that's what he wants us ministering, that there's hope for people that are hopeless. He says, the Son of Man came to bring hope to the hopeless, to hope to the prisoners to those who are on death row that think there's no way out but down. 
and he gave us to share in that ministry. Now, that's not a popular ministry because it has to do with men humbling, getting humiliated before a God that loves them and saying, I can't make it on my own, but that's what he's given you. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the message. Here is the gospel. He made Christ. He made him who was sinless, perfect, the perfect son of God. He made him to become sin on our behalf. He took the weight and the guilt of all the sin of all time. The Bible says in Luke that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. What was he dreading? It wasn't the nails in his hands. Is the fact that he was going to be separated from the Father and the weight of the sin of the world was going to be placed on his shoulders. And that's when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the Father could not look on his only begotten Son with that sin. My sin. Your sin. And religion can't take it off. Good intentions can't take it off. Only the precious blood of Christ can take that stain away. He was made to be sin on our behalf that we, what do we get? We get the righteousness of God in him. Now, we don't deserve that. He justified us just as like you never sinned. But more than that, he gives you the record of Christ. So when the father looks at you, what he sees is Christ's righteous record. That's grace, friends. But that's what he offers to lost people. And that's the great ministry he's called us into. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that will believe. God is not a judge of persons until they reject for all eternity. The only sin that sends a person to hell is rejecting the free gift of Jesus Christ because he promised anybody that comes to him, he will never cast out. What's your sin this morning? What, what keeps you from him? The Bible says the wicked are like the troubled sea that always casting out mire and dirt. There is no peace. There is no rest. And Jesus says, come unto me and you'll find rest to your soul. Submit to Jesus Christ. Don't serve Satan anymore. Don't serve your flesh anymore. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But trust him. Father, we thank you for the great blessing of knowing you. For the courage we have because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. For the accountability. Lord, that's powerful to know that one day we'll give an account. But Lord, to hear well done. Well done, faithful servant. What a motivation and what a ministry. That we have the opportunity to share the gospel and see what you're going to do in the lives of people that have no hope. To bring hope to them. Oh, Lord, that you might find us faithful. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.